You're listening to the Art of Move podcast, hosted by Dr. William Raybar and Anthony Manuel, where we attempt to create a grand unified theory of human movement, biomechanics, and training. If you enjoy these episodes, you can watch them streamed live on nofilter.net, where you can interact directly and have all your questions answered in real time. Five, four, three, two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Art of Move podcast with myself, Anthony Manuel, my good friend, Dr. William Raybar. We're out here in the Canadian Rockies trying to find the grand unified theory of human movement, biomechanics, functional movement, and training. All that good stuff about how you should be moving in your body, living in your body, training in your body, and feeling awesome kicking ass in life every day. Today, we're joined by Biomechanics Weekly's own Jonathan Fuentes. He's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner, an integrative body worker, movement therapist, and personal trainer who has founded Biomech Weekly on Instagram at Biomech Weekly, which is a low-cost subscription-based collaborative content platform focusing on decentralized views of biomechanics, training modalities, and any other sensory-based practice, which is kind of why I reached out because it's very, very aligned in what we're doing here on the Art of Move. A decentralized approach sees human biomechanics modalities as a sensory technology that serves human beings to be more independent and empowered for their own self-interests while not identifying with any of the philosophies of their creators. Trusting direct experience and testing everything for oneself first and foremost, especially with sensory experience, it denies any authority on biomechanics outside of ourselves and always emphasizes the supremacy of the experiencer, capital E, experiencer, and what is useful to us in our studies of sensory technologies. These ideas have been influenced by cutting-edge philosophies rooted in futurism, specifically the book titled The Agathon Empire, published in 2020, which I haven't read yet. So I'm really, really excited to talk to you, man, because everything that I just read out there from the bio that you sent me, it really resonated with me. One of the approaches that I really like that you have is the sort of uh, consciousness-oriented approach to looking at biomechanics, not having an authority figure attached to philosophies or training uh, principles as it relates to biomechanics. So I'd love to talk to you about how you kind of came to some of these ideas and what your current practice looks like. Um, I also saw on your page, uh, some of your pages that you're really influenced by classical Indian and Persian uh, training philosophies using some of the clubs. And those are things that I don't have any experience in. So I'm looking forward to just chatting overall, man. How are you doing today? I'm good, man. I uh, was working earlier, got up at eight to work, uh, got up at dawn, six in the morning, did some Qigong, uh, drank some raw eggs, got some gelatin in my system, got a bunch of coffee and sugar, and then went to work four hours. Had a hard training session in the Florida heat. It is just so hot right now. Heat index is like 107 degrees. Um, it's crazy. And uh, I'm training really hard because I'm trying to gain some weight. So I have to train hard, have to eat a lot. And my metabolism is already adapting to a 4,000 calorie diet, diet, which is insane. I don't know how much more I can eat. Maybe I'll just be this <laughs> weight forever. It is what it is. Um, the book is actually titled The Agathon Engine. The Agathon Engine. Oh. Uh, the, uh, the author is not stated there uh, deliberately. Because it's uh, just a world-building primer for the 2020s. It's a really interesting book. Um, I don't have any kind of direct affiliation, you know, like with the book. I'm not getting any proceeds from it. But it's a perfect book, I think, uh, for anybody. Um, I, 
definitely interested in biomechanics, but for many different things uh, right now, many different disciplines, people would find that useful, especially people I think involved with technology, people with a lot of money. Somebody like Elon Musk should have that book, should read that book. It's not a very long book. Um, so basically, uh, yeah, like uh, that book talks a lot about this concept that you've kind of read off a little bit in the bio, and that's decentralization. So uh, listening to your podcast, you know, your podcast is a bit of a decentralized podcast or, or if not completely. And uh, that's essentially uh, what we need um, across a variety of fields and disciplines right now. Um, you know, we're kind of involved with uh, sensory, um, uh, sensor, using sen sensory uh, stimulus technologies, however you want to describe it, practices, training modalities, to basically uh, regenerate the body, heal the body, regenerate the body, make the body more uh, dur durable. The regenerative component of it is huge. Uh, some of the things that biomechanics has to offer to people in terms of regeneration um, is kind of a uh, well, kind of like a secret, uh, you know, but not, it's a strange thing. You know, you hear these interesting, you know, I, I'm a clinician, so I work with messed up people all the time trying to help them out and stuff. Like I'm sure, uh, you know, doc over here does too. And, uh, you know, you don't hear too many stories. Uh, maybe you hear like really, uh, amazing stories every now and then, but you don't hear too many stories of people like really regenerating from sometimes ailments that aren't, that crazy, like a uh, bulging disc, you know, things like that. Like I got four bulging discs on my spine, four in my neck. And it was the narrative for them for, you know, 10 years, you know, or like that bad injury they got where they were playing sports and stuff. Um, and biomechanics is basically a way for people to change the, the memory of the body, uh, tap into neuroplasticity, um, retention, uh, you know, the tissue when, you know, Jordan from Flowability said something interesting that uh, one of the most observable parts of the body from a scientific point of view is the muscles, you know, um, and that's kind of an interesting perspective. And biomechanics has a lot to do with uh, neuromuscular uh, activity, the nervous system and the muscles. So I'll, you know, let you guys kind of go ahead and go off with that. So, yeah, I like all those ideas, especially the decentralization idea. And that was kind of our intent right off the get go. Um, I became interested in this idea reading a book called The Creature of Jekyll Island back in the day, um, probably a good 10 years ago. It was amazing, kind of reoriented myself to want to move more towards that. Um, now, in terms of everything that you said, I really like all those like, um, you know, flowability, talking about muscles, um, being a clinician, I see the same things you do there. Where do you start? How do you have someone come in and be like, okay, here's where I start with this person and here's where I want to take them. Does it depend on their goals or how do you orient that? Um, there's these pretty popular posts in our circle from, uh, I think it's called like neurokinetic something. And they do like these like quick little uh, posts. Do you guys know the IG handle off the top of your head? I can. Yeah. So those guys, they do really good, like short descriptions that I think has a lot to do with the kind of a decentralized approach to biomechanics. I can't say anything about their protocols and things like that. I haven't tried them too much, but I know their thinking is pretty much, it's pretty good. And um, one of the things that they said recently was like, you can't really work in a set of protocols that may be a form of organization, you know, of structuring knowledge for you to learn things. But when you're actually um, 
doing work with people, there's a lot of things going on outside of the realm, but of even assessment, but just talking objectively, quote unquote, a lot of it does start with assessment. Um, however, how you interpret that assessment, um, what kind of techniques you use to address the data that you've gathered from the assessment, all of that uh, is something that changes pretty much every session. And if you're talking about, uh, you know, in terms of like how every session is different, the nervous system that you're working with isn't the same every day. You know what I mean? Uh, and that has a lot to do with it too. Um, and, you know, sometimes you do things um, that are counterintuitive to maybe the way that you're trained that end up getting you um, maybe a better result or kind of getting you to the same place quicker. Like uh, say you're trying to address an anterior tilt, you know, an ilium, you know, typically, you know, a generic thing is you look at the quadriceps shortening, maybe the ileicus, but maybe you did something lower on the superficial front line and you looked at the tibia because that tibia, for whatever reason, because of a lack of uh, really bad ankle immobility, is really affecting that hip. Maybe it's even has a lot to do with the big toe or the plantar fascia of the feet. So uh, you don't work in these rigid boxes, but you use all the data you have and you use assessment to help create heuristics. This idea of heuristics, of making sense out of the chaos so that you can basically have some kind of a starting point and make practical choices in regards to creating some kind of a beneficial effect with the least amount of harm uh, possible. So, Do you have a standardized assessment that you kind of begin at that, that's broad enough for you to start to specialize in, in more specific assessment? Because obviously when you're talking about heuristics and you're talking about that, there's there's so many variables and so many aspects that you could test for. Like you said, you're like, okay, well, maybe it's not this part of the chain. Maybe it's lower or higher up the chain. But do you have a general broad, I guess, standard of movement quality that you're looking for or standard of function that you're specifically looking for when you begin an assessment? It depends how much time I have. It depends what kind of resources I have in the facility that I'm in. Um, what, what that determines kind of what I'm going to be doing with the, with the client a little bit, a lot of what I'm learning on the table can directly inform what I would do with them from a biomechanics or a kinematic point of view, which is a benefit to, um, being a body worker or being an osteopath, being a chiropractor or PT, all those things, they teach you hands-on assessments. So <clears throat> fortunately as a massage therapist, having a license to touch, there was nothing preventing me from studying with chiropractors, osteopaths, uh, PTs massage therapist. The only thing, the only reason why I wouldn't do that was because I didn't want to spend money. But in the beginning, you know, when I went to massage therapy school, there was a really smart dude that developed the anatomy curriculum that I had. He taught me one of the most important lessons I ever had, which was the more you know, the more people will pay you for what you know. Um, and it was really good because it basically, it's like from a practical point of view, the better I get and the more I know about my specialty, you know, the more I can expand that with a decentralized kind of perspective. And I didn't have that from the beginning. You run in this field of manual therapy or biomechanics. Before I got into any of this, I was into religious studies. I thought I wanted to be a PhD in religious studies before I went into a, a trade school. I didn't just read books. I went out and I met a bunch of people from a lot of different religions. And what do you run into? You run into gurus. They exist in, in manual therapy. They exist in biomechanics. And a lot of it has to do with these um, 
miracle-like experiences that you're trying to generate with the client, these breakthrough experiences, people are looking for ways to get out of their pain and it's connected to their body. So there's that whole kind of thing going on. But as far as heuristics and things that I've kind of used, um, a big one for me, to be honest, there's this guy, hopefully you guys know him. He's sick in biomechanics. He's amazing. Uh, this guy named John Haddad from the Level 8 Center. He's out in Lebanon. Um, the guy is really smart and he has a very interesting his history and very, very good. And he's a very good example of like a biomechanic. I mean, he's really working with the levers and mechanics of the body. Um, and it looks a lot like on the outside, like something like functional patterns, but there's a lot of nuance to what he's doing. And he was involved with FP way back in the day, but he's very much his own kind of guy and he's got his own way of thinking. And uh, I learned really good uh, assessments studying with him in Germany. I flew to Germany twice. Um, really good assessments uh, with that. I learned some good assessments from James Wislaski, orthopedic massage. I learned some good assessments from Kerry D'Ambrosio. He's a PT in two countries and an acupuncturist um, and a massage therapist. That's with uh, TBB. He's associated with the Cranial Sacral Institute. I learned some really good assessments from him. One of the biggest things I learned from him was the concept of a feather barrier, which can't, goes back to osteopathy. So the feather barriers like to assess, you know, a leg, you're grabbing the leg and you're thinking of limbs like levers and these levers, you're taking them through vectors. And one of the things that I learned um, studying Ayurveda, because I studied Ayurveda, um, is in the Indian philosophy, they see vectors, directions as part of material plane. It's like a limb. You know what I mean? Like a vector is like this physical thing. And so much of the healing effects of biomechanics training um, has to do with taking limbs through vectors. You know what I mean? Uh, it's not just like mechanotransduction. You don't have to use pressure. Taking limbs through vectors gives information to the nervous system to autocorrect. And so one of the things that I learned from Carrie's uh, work was just taking a limb, say someone's laying um, supine on a table. And like a woman I had today who was doing chemo and she's looks on, you know, she's a sweet, sweet woman full of life. And I'm, I'm hoping the best for her. But, you know, you look on the outside, her body's really jacked up. Right. And she knows it. You can barely pick up this woman's leg. So a lot of these orthopedic assessments without this concept of a feather barrier involved in the assessment, you're trying to take her leg and assess the range of motion of this lever. You're ripping through barriers that her nervous system doesn't feel safe in from pretty much the moment you take an inch off the table. A lot of the times, like when you take someone to assess range of motion of a joint, they don't really don't want to go that much higher, but you push it through. The body's pushing back much, much quicker than you think. So the philosophy is that's an assessment in itself. And then you work the lever, taking it through vectors, which is treatment in itself. And then you retest. And what happens is that the 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 leg in this instance goes up higher before you get a barrier again it's not all the way down low again but you didn't have to take it through all those barriers cause pain during the treatment the assessment and so many techniques that you would do would involve moving the leg depending on what you're doing and the body's just resisting it the whole time you know what i mean uh so those are two two a couple you know so john haddad really good in terms of assessments looking for heuristics John Haddad was solid. Um, you know, James Wislaski, uh, Eric Dalton, I believe is his name, Carrie D'Ambrosio. 
uh, I learned some really good assessments for the cranium from a guy named Don McCann, who studied with a chiropractor that worked primarily with the sutures of the cranium. Um, and that had a lot to do with postural distortions associated with cranial misalignments. A lot of it has to do with the SBS, the spinobasilar synchondrosis. You have a side bend in the SBS, a cranial sacral person's like, oh, okay, side bend in the cranium. But no, there's a side bend in the rib cage too, on the on the same side. So they would correlate torsions of the femur, the tibia with certain cranial asymmetries, which is a whole another thing. So yeah, yeah. no, like um I, I would I would want to know how one would know other than an x-ray how the uh I can't remember what bone you said, the uh, basically the cephanoid bone is tilting, I believe, right? How would you know that in an assessment? Bro. The worst possible kind of assessments, um, muscle testing. So, so muscle testing is going to get you the angle of the cephanoid bone? I don't do it that much. Okay. I yeah. just apply the technique, and this is a good a good, a good, good thing. I apply the technique because I see positive effects. Fair enough. Think, yeah, you know what I mean? I see positive effects, and I can also feel the sutures moving, and I can feel that these are a little bit smoother. And another thing I notice usually, usually after is that the soft tissue in the body it doesn't resist myofascial release as much. It softens here. So let me ask you about that. Uh, with the skull, yeah. I, I work with the, the fascia of the skull, right? And I, I understand that, but I've never been able to manipulate sutures or be um, confident that I'm doing so. However, mm -hmm. I do have uh, techniques that I go pretty deep in there. How do I know I'm moving a suture? Honestly, man, um, <laughs> I can't tell you. You know, we're, in, we're like in the business of manual therapy, a yeah. lot of it, you know, is, is like in the eye of the beholder, so to speak. Yeah. There's objective assessments you could do. Like you could do, say, a cranial technique and then look at the pelvis again. You could look at the tilts of the pelvis. You could look at hip hikes. That's pretty good. You know, you do some techniques up there. You're like, I don't know if this is doing anything. But then you look at the pelvis right after. You haven't done anything else. Ten minutes have passed. And the tilts are different. And the hip hike is different. So there has to be some effect, right? Like, you know what I'm saying? So you're trying to, you, you're, you're not, you're not, you know, trying to be crazy about what's true. Like maybe, um, bullshit physio kind of takes it a little bit too far. But one thing about bullshit physio that I actually appreciate, he says this word, I've heard him say it once and no one, I thought no one in this field has said this word and it has to relate to this idea of decentralization maybe indirectly. This is work called itriogenic. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the word itriogenic. It's when treatment causes problems. Mm -hmm. Need to avoid itriogenic effects at all costs. So the whole idea of like a de decentralized approach when the whole like um, uh, manifesto slash bio that you, you read so well, um, you know, Say uh, you got a movement system and the spine looks a certain way or you only put pressure on a certain side of the foot. You don't really know the extent of itriogenic effects that that might be taking. And the only reason why you would stay rigid with something in a certain way is because of an identification with a philosophical point of view, basically interpretation. So biomechanics and philosophy are not separate. You, The moment you start interpreting you're trying to use reason and you're not that far away from philosophy. Therefore, you need a philosophical model that respects the experiencer and is self-organizing 
and is not going to become identified with the objects that it's studying and experimenting with. And that's the whole point of a decentralized approach to anything. Well, that, that was one of the things that I really liked about the first bio that you sent me. I was actually literally having this conversation with someone yesterday where we tried so many different models and different theories. And, and this is the thing, like one of the things that I've repeated a couple of times on this podcast is like, this is by nature, this is a podcast where we're talking about movement and we're talking about biomechanics, but the map is not the territory. The finger pointing at the moon isn't the moon that it's this idea that the, the discussions and the descriptions of movement and biomechanics are not movement and biomechanics themselves. That experiential element always has to be there. And, and, you know, as much as I love talking about it, as much as I love to, you know, to explore the different models, to explore the different ideas, you, you, the rubber has to meet the road at some point, you have to have uh, an experiential point. And, and if you're, if you're arguing, you know, bits and bites here and there, like, I mean, there's so much debate online that happens between so systems uh that ultimately what's what's the what's the what's the movement reality that's happening beyond the conceptual debate beyond the conceptual discussion what's what's the movement reality that's happening i think that's that's a that's a huge missing component when we're talking about it it's like if, if a person is getting a certain result that's great you know it doesn't matter if you're if you, like in terms of the logistical details of how you got there or the proprietary intellectual <laughs> uh, trademark that you have around it right um so this decentralized approach I'm, I'm a huge fan of because well i mean that's that's where that's i, I kind of come from the same background right like i i thought i was gonna go into comparative religious studies and i did it myself just independently for years and same thing when it met different people and had debates and discussions with people of different religions and learned the history of like um, you know, every Eastern and Western um, philosophy and and religion that I could get my hands on. And eventually it was like, well, okay. It's, I, I started to see the, the same sort of nature of almost borderline religious debate happening within nutrition, within fitness, within now, now biomechanics, right? Like it's, it's the same sort of thing. You get, you get really, really caught up. Hardcore. In, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's so it's so niche too, and and I was I was saying this to someone. It's like in order for you to like think deeply about biomechanics, you have to go against the grain of a lot of uh, mainstream golden cow fitness ideas, and even mainstream academic ideas, and the types of personality that that are drawn to going against the grain are like type A personalities, and sometimes big personalities with big thoughts and big ideas. They don't often mesh, <laughs> you know, it's a lot, it's a lot of personality to meet in the middle. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, going off that, what's a, what's a big golden cow from the industry that you see that, you know, you want to tackle right away, something that jumps out at you. Oh man. Uh, this whole, okay. Okay. So, all right. Dr. Gamberto, right? Dr. Gamberto uh, was, I believe, the first person. He's from France. He was a hand surgeon. He was the first person, I believe, that did, actually did uh, micros microscopy, so like microscopic uh, video of fascia while people were still alive. Mm -hmm. And if you read his book, uh, I think it's called like The Architecture of Living Fascia, of Human Living Fascia, some big uh, book title like that. It's kind of disturbing what he found out because it's kind of like how quantum physicists 
quantum physicists felt when they discovered quantum physics. It was kind of disturbing. So um, it's much more um, out there than I think like what Tom Myers and anatomy trains is. Tom Myers anatomy trains is great. I think levers are great. You look at Adrian Barr and the way he thinks about levers, amazing. You know, uh, Adarian Barr, I believe is his name, a gate specialist. The way he talks about levers is really interesting. And uh, you look at Tom Myers and you you have all the, the meridians and amazing. You could spend a long time studying movement through that lens and ha like being very well equipped at uh, interpreting kind of what you're seeing simply because it's a uh, nonlinear but also uh, like a holistic, like you're connecting various parts of the body together. You're trying to see how all the parts of the body are talking to each other mm -hmm. in various activities. But what got Dr. Gianberto found out was crazy things like fascia behaving with its own consciousness and its own intelligence, doing things where there is, it's not operating according to a model. You know, fascia is not operating necessarily according to a model. If it can do have its own volition, you know, create its own behaviors, do things like seemingly uh, have, um, uh, I believe he said, like, I don't want to get this wrong, but almost like precognition, almost like kind of like, yeah, you know, kind of like anticipating future events and like positioning itself in certain areas that just seemed very, very strange. And uh, what, what we're kind of talking about with biomechanics is this whole centralization of information, especially about something like biomechanics, because I really care about um, what biomechanics can become because of what it's did for me. I basically was, maybe I could have been an athlete. I saw playing baseball like in high school on purpose, started reading books. But I became very athletic and very safe. I haven't really had any major injuries um, ever despite pretty much doing everything I wanted to do, no matter what it was. And I attribute a lot of it to knowing a lot about biomechanics and being able to use it to my advantage and my own self-interest. That's very important. You're not doing this stuff for some guy's cause that has nothing to do with you. You're doing it for yourself and for your, the clients you can help at your own discretion. You know what I mean? If you have your own business, you know, whatever you want to grow your business, but once you become a little bit evangelical and trying to centralize the information too, too much, it's like you're putting yourself open. Uh, what's there? There's a saying. There's an old saying. It's like, if you can't trade along borders, the soldiers will start coming in, right? So if parts of the world aren't trading with each other, there's going to be someone that's going to start, I don't know, saying stuff on social media about you or something like that. You know what I mean? Uh, taking shots at your brand or your business or something. So the whole centralization really is uh, the big uh, kind of like the big, big thing that I'm really focusing on. I'm really focusing on just on this like decentralized approach it was explained really well um, in the Agathon engine, because according to Dr. Gambotra's research, fascia seems to behave in that fashion. It seems to behave like when he's talking about how fascia behaves, it's basically if you ever seen Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, the alien scene with the geometric like shapes, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like there's these like seem to be recurring patterns of shapes, 
certain shapes, which is really interesting when you think about like platonic philosophy and Pythagoras and stuff like that. There's like these seemingly mathematical shapes that are really consistent as what Fasch is. And then it's these the chaotic fractals. It's chaos and then it becomes order. And then it's chaos and then it becomes order. And he makes a point in the book, in his research, which is some of the most objective research that exists, in my opinion, far more objective than how you interpret video of people running. You know what I mean? Um, he uh, basically makes a point over and over and over. It's like, we can't base like human anatomy exclusively on like functional Darwinian kind of evolution. You know what I mean? Like it's something much bigger, much more mysterious than our so-called anthropological history. Let's not talk about how long human civilization actually is in Egypt and all the crazy stuff out there and Graham Hancock's research. Because we know that the field of anthropology and the field of history are deeply intertwined. And yeah, they're not that it's not that far away from like human anatomy and our interpretation of like why things work the way they do in human anatomy. A lot of it is based on anthropology. So as far as like our theories, our models that, you know, the way that we're kind of interpreting what the body's built for and stuff. So that's kind of my big thing is like, if you have a decentralized approach, you're not going to limit yourself on what you're capable of using and doing um, by say sticking to the thing that works by identifying by something that's worked for you. My whole deal is like, keep uh, seeking knowledge, keep trying to expand uh, your abilities, uh, the powers of the human body, its ability to regenerate, to, uh, you know, more acquisition of different skills in your body um, so that whatever this, this little group is, you know, it can kind of do whatever it wants to do us, you know, or whatever kind of whatever they want to do you know, it's because it's your choice. It's not because you've identified with a set of beliefs, you know, which a lot of the most evangelical beliefs do go to this anthropological Darwinian functional theory, which Dr. Gamberto's research has absolutely nothing to do with when it comes to like looking at how fascia actually behaves, which in my opinion, it behaves in this Thing called spontaneous order, which is also talked a lot about in the Agathon engine. And spontaneous order is basically there's this philosopher, I forgot his name, I used to know his name, maybe Hobbes. I think it's like Thomas Hobbes. He wrote this book called The Leviathan. And that's how biomechanics people act when like you don't do like their system, some of the bigger systems, it's gonna be like chaos, you know, like you're you're going to be like exposed to the ailments of 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 the side effects of all the ignorance of modern society because you know the things that kind of got you in pain in the first place and stuff the leviathan you know the whole idea is like if we don't have like this set of moral compass which comes from like a rigid religious belief system the world is just going to fall into chaos when the reality is we need something like anarchy or decentralization that is based on the individual as the unit of society as the fundamental unit, the subject, that is the unit on which everything is built off of. As long as you don't rob and kill other people or you know do horrible things, anarchy will be spontaneous order, mm -hmm. which is exactly, if you look at Dr. Gianberto's research, how Fascia seems to behave. It seems to behave 
and anarchy. In other words, spontaneous order. It self-organizes in these chaos to to uh, to to order chaos, and it just never kind of ends. And that's spontaneous order. That's my kind of idea of like anarchy, and it has to do with uh, decentralization. So when you are kind of based on the experiencer, you'll be able to surf, you know, this whole process that your own body's trying to take you through um, with autonomy uh, and with far greater uh, efficiency. Um, and you're not likely to be caught and snared along the way. And your cures end up becoming your poisons. And you won't be able to make use of new poisons or old poisons that are actually cures for you. You know what I'm saying? Like you won't be able to make use of everything that's available to you. Things that you hurt you before are now medicine, but that would never happen. You'd never be able to interpret that if you're not, if you're operating in some kind of a centralized fashion where you're identifying with a one best way kind of belief system that's inhibiting your intelligence and inhibiting your proprioception. So, yeah, I, I think there's a certain type of person and, and that can gravitate away from the masses, right? And the masses are the masses for a reason because most people like to find a leader. They're not sure of themselves. And uh, it's easy to gravitate towards a guru, especially in this field, right? Like he's got the knowledge and I'm going to stay there forever and, and obtain this knowledge. And then you get caught up in the community aspect of it. Another thing you were saying about the uh, spontaneous order, I believe that's an anarcho-capitalist philosophy. Um, I love it, right? Like decentralization, uh, anarchy does not actually mean no rulers. There always is a structure. It's just decentralized as much as possible towards the local community where it actually benefits somebody, right? And, and that goes away from the idea of having a centralized leader. Um, back to another thing you were saying about the, um, the fascia and uh, precognition, I believe you were saying, with the fascia and having a... Um, that is based off the first principle in my belief that the mind is actually organizing all the events because we were looking for the organization from the mind. It's not there. So therefore the first principle is like, well, it's not there. So it's the organization. That's the problem. What if it's not actually coming from that centralized structure in the first place? Any thoughts on that? There's a really interesting uh, idea out there that the unconscious is actually a reservoir of future perceptions of like future thoughts. Think about this from a philosophical point of view. Let's do a thought experiment. You literally can live forever. Okay, you're an immortal. You literally can live forever. Okay, we're doing this thought experiment. Okay, I can live forever. The future is always a mystery. You'll never actually, you'll, because you're always in the present. So there must be some kind of a function, some kind of a function that is precognitive. There, it almost has to be because the future exists, but it's never actually in front of you. It's always in the dark, in the unconscious. You get what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. So there's something there, you know? That's, that's even logical in my head there. It's logical. It's logical. It's a logical thought experiment. Mm -hmm. For sure. Anthony, anything to add to that one? Yeah, I have, I have a lot of like, there's, there's so much that we're covering and, and I'm, I'm kind of making all these little connections. I don't know if in your comparative religious studies, if you ever kind of dipped into Taoism at all. But, I read, um, I read everyone. 
Yeah. So, 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 you know, Taoism, people kind of know like the, the main text of Taoism being the Tao Te Ching, right. Which was Lao Tzu's, um, basically manifesto of the Taoist philosophy. And not a lot of people have this interpretation, but, uh, he wrote it as a manual for governance for, for, for an emperor, for, for a ruler. Right. And, and his whole thing is like, don't govern the people and they'll find their own way. It's like water will always find its level. The same thing with, uh, with these macro societal structures. Mm-hmm. It's this idea that w- from within chaos, it will, it, it, and it's interesting because it's, it's basically saying like, as a leader, you will find, uh, the most harmony by allowing the most chaos. And it's the self, this self-organizing principle mm-hmm. of, of finding order from within chaos. And I found that really interesting, this idea that the Tao, the, the, this invisible force that as soon as you try to describe it, it isn't the thing, mm-hmm. but this self-organizing natural principle is, is that order within chaos, within order, within chaos ad mm-hmm. infinitum. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so, so, so this is, so this is a kind of, what, my, the question that kind of arises for me is with this sort of, with these layers of abstraction and not, not like maybe, maybe compartmentalizing this idea of an evolutionary or an anthropological basis for looking at the, the human structure. Uh, you know, I know that's like, that's a big argument. So use everything. If it's useful, mm-hmm. use it. That's my thing. My thing is actually utility, but for the person, the individual. That is my thing. You know, that's that's for me. That's a fundamental thing. So, so I guess the the question is is within these abstractions, and within you know this this mass variability, is there something that is correct? Is there a correct biomechanics? Is there an optimal biomechanics? And that that for me is like, you know, people talk about the optimal gait pattern, the optimal mechanics for, you know, athletic endeavors. Does is like we've been kind of having a discussion with a pre-assumption that there's a correct way to move, or there's a correct way to apply the gait cycle, or there's a correct or a more correct, you know, like um, we kind of liked using Goda as, as this map because it kind of existed on a spectrum where it's like the, the further you are to, to, to these good patterns, the less injury and the, the more efficiency you tend to experience, the f- closer you are here, the less efficiency, the more force absorption and the more injury you experience. And it's a spectrum. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. Cause even, even with Goda, they kind of conceded that there's like, there's no perfect, but it is the spectrum, right? Like you can, like the Goda 10 is almost this imaginary point on a spectrum, which is this perfect, uh, exhibition of of mechanics, but with basically we're we're, we're kind of exploring this idea of okay, fa- you know, fascia is this almost chaotic principle that exhibits its own qualities of consciousness. And and by the way, even unpacking the idea of what is a quality of consciousness, how do you how do you display qualities of consciousness? Mm-hmm. Um, my brother and I have conversations all the time because he he programs artificial intelligence and he's very oh, invested wow. in, in programming right and uh, and you know there's this uh this whole um right now a popular topic is like did this lambda ai mm-hmm. that this google employee just programmed did it actually demonstrate qualities mm-hmm. of sentience which is consciousness right so um the uh the news line on it because it said it uh, it seemed like a precocious child and that's just mm-hmm. so cool for like ai when it, if it really is becoming sentient right now, that that's how it's behaving as like a personality, according to us. It's so interesting. I'm not buying it. 
<laughs> not buying it at all. It's a headline. It's made to to reinforce a narrative. Um, the, I got, but it's a, it's, it's an interesting know? conversation. It's an interesting conversation. You know, especially if you're talking from like a from a computer science perspective. But that but but to relay back to the original question, okay. do you think that there is a correct biomechanics for the human body? And if so, what's that based on? Uh, I honestly do not think so. And I actually think what is correct is what is useful to a person. And that changes. And it's also dependent upon the person too. So it's a radically subjective model that I use. Um, that means you basically like you have ultimate freedom to test everything. You bear the burden and responsibility of your freedom to actually test things, be honest about your investigation about them how they've affected you, and then to abandon your own conclusions, especially the things that have actually worked for you. If it if it really, truly works, and it really has truly affected your biomechanics, it will be residual. It, it'll be residual, meaning it's not necessarily going to go away if you leave it alone. You get what I'm saying? So if you do Goda for three months, and you got the Goda download, and you're like, damn, this really helped me. Now I'm going to deliberately stop doing it. And I'm going to try something else that might be useful for me in another way that's different, see how it feels in my body. And then you keep learning. You keep learning. You keep doing things. And as far as like developing a, a model for biomechanics, develop your model. Develop the best model you could possibly do. Develop as many of them as possible because the human mind is capable of holding infinite models in its consciousness and making sense of it neuroplastically if you're operating in a decentralized framework. If you're not, you're going to have cognitive dissonance and an aneurysm every single time you go face a new model. But if you don't do that in the first place, you're just the uh, the sky is the limit. There's absolutely no limitation. You just keep learning, abandoning, sticking to things. Things will stick to you, meaning things that you've developed and cultivated in your body, certain neuromuscular associations, certain motor patterns and qualities. They're not just going to vanish. You may do something. One way, say with Goda, but another way of doing things as far as like, I don't know, like lifting weights, you know, whatever, non-Goda or something like that, you're not good at it anymore and it hurts more and you complain about it. But if you just would stop doing that and get back good at lifting weights and then kind of cycle through things and then figure out what kind of cycles you like to do in your own personal life to get to a bigger goal, to get to a bigger goal of like freedom and ability of things to do where you kind of repeat exposure yourself to systems and their stimulus because the system is just a constellation of, in, of information. It's just structured information with uh, its own filter, you know, its own conditionings and things like that based on the interpretations of its creators and stuff. And you can take that and you, you know, you take it and you learn from it and then you go ahead and you move on and you study something else. One radical expression of this um, in the biomechanics world and people look at him, they don't take him seriously. Some people do. I would take him seriously because he was a professional athlete is Benjamin Aguilar. That guy, you look at him doing stuff, Benjamin equilibrium. You're just like, what the fuck is this guy doing? But that guy studies so much stuff and he was a professional athlete too. And he, he's having fun. You know what I mean? He's having fun. He's doing all kinds of different things. That's not what I mean necessarily as far as like what it looks like to you, you know, whoever's listening to this, but it's the idea of not being, bound by the tools that you're using that's so what's really important yeah 
So um, you're really speaking to the person who's already in biomechanics and who already has this thought process because um, to even get to what you're saying takes a lot of work to be able to listen to yourself, to, to be able to feel in your body, um, to, mm -hmm. you know, like if I was to go out right now and, and run up a hill and, and try to run down, I'd be fine because I've done it a million times, but take the average person, they do it, they're going to fall in the face and injure themselves. So mm -hmm. there may, may be an optimal pattern at a certain point in your life. So are you mm -hmm. really speaking to the person who's already in biomechanics, who's already figured half of this out? and stopping them from going towards the gurus is, mm -hmm. that, is that really that's a big a big thing for me because there's so many smart people in biomechanics and they're so obsessed with it and they're learning so much but they're not really tapping into their own intelligence and if they start doing that and they start creating um a catalaxy which is basically like free exchange of information and there's frith frith means like the peace the peace and friendliness that underlies exchange and in an economy. So if there's frith and there's catalaxy among biomechanics practitioners, the influx of information will just be absurd. It'll be absurd, the influx of information. But it's so hard to even get necessarily to that point. And you know when it really comes out? It comes out usually not always in the big general ideas that we're trying to get on now, but specifics. Specifics among practitioners. It's almost like jujitsu. You're going into... Uh, uh, half butterfly half guard into Ashigarama. I mean, there's this sweep and then we're going to, everything's very, very, very specific. That's not for the general public, but when it comes to the free economy of information and a decentralized format and really embodying intelligence and the future of our society and really stepping into those shoes of like totally taking full responsibility of your own intelligence, it really comes a lot in, in the specifics of really being scientific and like, you know, but if you're tr locked up in a system, that free exchange of information, it's going to be stifled and it's going to be very complicated. So that's very important for me. But as far as for like the general person, <clears throat> the general person, I think a, I think a couple things. I think like general stress, general stress, ways of getting into your body that dramatically reduce stress and connect you in your body. Um, there's a couple things like. Uh, Qigong. I, I'm a fan of Qigong. They're very gentle movements and they can be very profound and very effective and very beneficial for the for the fascia. Like there was a time where I just removed all these fancy biomechanics modalities and other great corrective protocols or whatever and just did Qigong. And I get huge benefits just from that. And it was enough for me with all the intense stuff that I put my body through between weightlifting and jujitsu. So I know it works and it's like a good thing if you put, you know, you know, the time into it. Um, visualization, like just feeling your body somatically, closing your eyes, sensing your feet, going all the way up. You don't have to do anything for that, but doing that stuff like repeatedly, I think helps a lot for people. Um, obviously there's like basic things that are probably pretty important. You can reference somebody like Escher Gokul, Escher Gokul, you know, ways of like sitting in a chair. Yes. You know, the lumbar has that curve on the bottom. We should kind of respect it and kind of like Take it in consideration. You know, I'm a fan of the posterior tilt too, like as far as like things like PRI does and stuff like that. But a lot of what the qualities that Escher Gokul talks about for the general layperson in public, learning how to like sit in a chair uh, efficiently, you know, where you're kind of like supporting your own gravity because you're on your sits bones, like Fability always talks about. There's these elements that do seem to be kind of universal, very low entry for people and very useful. 
um, in terms of like improving their life. Like maybe they could have been taught like in school or something like that. Um, but everything else, like the whole the protraction and uh, the, the TBA always like the blowing, like the, all these other things is like, yeah, when you're doing this system and the modality and trying to work with that and learn from that, fine. But as far as like the general public, I'm never going to use a specific model as being the best mm -hmm. for like general public because it almost never works. It almost never works. So you kind of have to like kind of take a step back and being like, well, obviously people do better when their stress levels are reduced and they're connecting with their body somatically at the same time. A lot of people have a tough time just sitting in meditation. So doing that like as a practice um, is hard for a lot of people like sitting or being in a chair and stuff like that. But if you're like focusing on your body, whether doing Qigong or like somatically focusing on different parts of your body, another one too, that is really good and very low entry as far as like effort and stress is um, Feldenkrais. Mm -hmm. Feldenkrais is super underrated. Feldenkrais, you're just like doing, like I did Feldenkrais. I had some problems with my jaw a long time ago. And um, oh, I'm going to tell you something crazy. All right. So my jaw was pretty good. Go ahead. Go what is what is Feldenkrais for for people who don't like I don't I don't know what that is off the top of my head. Feldenkrais um, was founded by this guy that did judo, and I don't know exactly where it was from, and I can't say too much about it. I don't know too much about the history of it, but what I was doing, I'll tell you my experience when I was doing say like jaw stuff. They'll do these. They focus on basically you doing these movements with your body with the least amount of ever possible. So like literally the least amount of effort possible. And it's usually very, 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 very easy to do. And you're very relaxed doing them. And then they're connecting with like, uh, I can't say too much about it. You should maybe interview a Feldenkrais guy uh, sometime, but it's super underrated. And uh, they'll, they'll like, you know, one thing I did was like put my tongue on the roof of my mouth, slide it all the way to the back of my molars. Well, like I'm looking up with my eyes or something like that, or maybe like tractioning the top of my head just a little bit. You see MoveMed doing some stuff like this, you know, with Nay. Mm. Um, but, you know, I don't know how how transferable it is with that. Another one that's pretty good too, as long as you don't make it too stressful, simple things like nasal breathing, you know, so like Batekio was a really good thing. I think for like a lot of people just learning how to like nasal breathe, um, what they can't do it you know, uh, do something like box breathing. So like, you know, like in two seconds, hold two seconds, out two seconds, hold the exhale for two seconds. But that pause in between breaths really does have like a profound effect on the, uh, the vagus nerve and like dramatically reducing stress levels for people. So what I'm, what I'm hearing is you, you don't mind learning from multiple different systems and you don't mind even a, a maybe like a modular approach to categorizing different things, but even within that categorization and the, the, the contextualization of everything, you're still saying it's like, yes, you might have a really great system and it might apply to a broad context, but it's still always context. It's still always based on individuation. It's still always based on. Exactly. Uh, like the, uh, the go to seated postures, like the little go to stuff on the bottom, you know, things like that. It's like, once things getting into high stress, it's like the person has to really make a choice to do that. If you're just trying to help somebody that's already stressed and you're introducing higher stress biomechanics techniques, which is subjective, what they perceive as stress, mm. um, that's when it's like there needs to be a voluntary component of that person to try that. And then you have to basically you want the client to get better doing that or the person like doing it. But at the same time, you don't want them to be 
tied to it. And that's kind of like that tricky part where biomechanic systems and brands can really get somebody for a long, long time is there can be an itriogenic belief that's formed, whereas you're not going to get better unless you stick to only doing this for a long, long time. And if you go back too fast to doing other things, you might get hurt. And the you might get hurt if you do this, the nocebo that bullshit physio talks a lot about, the itriogenic idea that's a problem not only for biomechanics practitioners, but for just people in the general public that don't know nuance about biomechanics that are trying to use it for their advantage. Yeah, I think that can be done in really any field. I see it in, you know, right. massage, chiropractic, physio, medicine, everywhere, right? Like the, the same yeah. thing happens. Um, yeah, that's that's all interesting stuff. In terms of the uh, nocebo effect, um, how do you navigate that? Like, because every industry is going to have it, it's like, isn't there a trade-off there? Do you know what I mean? If someone comes into the biomechanics field and mm -hmm. there's a nocebo effect everywhere, how do you navigate that? Not everyone's going to be able to. Not everybody in this world is going to want to uh, be the captain of their own ship. You get what I'm saying? Like, what I would say to that is like, Read something like the Agathon engine and familiarize with these ideas or talk to people that at least think that way so that you can retain your independence of thought so that you can exercise your intelligence to the fullest possible degree when doing things like this, especially with your body, especially with your body, right? So not everyone is going to care. Therefore, you, if you're like a practitioner or something like that and you're working with these people, you operate you know, to the best of your ability and always in the client's like best interests. A lot of that has to do with like limiting any kind of itrogenic effects, any nocebos as much as possible. When something goes awry and you feel like you're going somewhere where the client is going to be um, more stressed, you try to veer it back, you know, to a kind of different uh, place. You know what I mean? Uh, whether that's through techniques or through communication with the client or changing up your approach or something like that. You're trying to keep it so that the client keeps benefiting um, as much as possible, even if it's incremental, with the least amount of uh, disempowerment as a person, you know, with the narrative and things like that of treatment uh, and obviously like any kind of harm from the techniques and stuff. So, yeah, um, let's let's move into jujitsu a little bit and how you navigate through jujitsu lifting weights and and doing um corrective work what do yeah. you find you have to do from let's say jujitsu uh sparring you you do it for two or three hours is there any uh movements that you do afterwards in particular or any uh ritual that you have that you do so here's the thing like biomechanics increases your uh kinesthetic intelligence so as far as like a contribution to human society in general, the field of biomechanics will increase your kinesthetic intelligence. Like the field of psychology was supposed to increase your emotional intelligence. The field of biomechanics is supposed to increase your kinesthetic intelligence. So the whole group, you know, in some form, even if you're not directly working with movement, you're movement therapists because eventually the client's going to get off of the table and start moving again. You know, that's like more of the basis of human existence. I do agree with like, we're probably not meant to uh, just not move. We're probably meant to move and stuff like that. So it increases your kinesthetic um, intelligence. 
So with jujitsu, all this stuff that I do, as long as it's increasing my kinesthetic intelligence, I don't have to worry too, too much um, about, you know, like doing jujitsu for a while of getting into it. A lot of this discomfort or the stress that I felt doing jujitsu came from a lack of um, being in touch with my own body. The more in touch with your own body, the easier jujitsu is going to feel in one sense. And one sense, as far as like your reactions to stress, someone on top of you, someone crushing you, you being crushed, you're being in touch with your body, your kinesthetic intelligence will kind of make it easier to deal with that stress on your body um, rather than just like being super reactive. The other thing is purely technical. You have to study jujitsu like anything else. The better you are at jujitsu, the more efficient your technique will be. There's been people that have measured their hearts doing jujitsu, and everyone's like, oh my God, the cardio in jujitsu is like something else. And it's like nothing else. And it's true. You're grappling other human beings, and it's very explosive, and there's a lot of grinding strength involved, like strength under a lot of time, you know, for a long period of time and stuff. But these guys that are really good with really good efficient techniques, they've been doing it for a long time. Their hearts are totally relaxed. They're not, they're not really working too hard unless they're going someone against someone with similar experience. That's just as good as they are. And then it becomes different. So when doing jujitsu, when you're starting out, everything seems stressful and difficult. All right. So that's why from a practical point of view within the field of jujitsu, one, you have resources, great minds available to people that, you know, I don't know if it's translated, but definitely English speakers. There's a guy named John Danaher, one of the most brilliant minds, I think, around. You study that guy. And one of the things that he says is, um, you know, when you're a white belt and you're a blue belt, study on escaping pins. You are going to get crushed. They're going to be by all kinds of different people. You're going to get crushed. You're going to be put in pins. People are going to be holding you down because the whole point of jujitsu, you have to basically control the person, positional control, fatigue them, submit them. That's the whole point of jujitsu. And if you're doing stand up, you take them down and then you do that whole process. So if you're developing efficiency with like pin escapes, and I did a DVD on side control escapes with Ryan Cialiola, Unpinnable, it's on BJJ Fanatics, great video. Um, say you're in side control, you're in, you're relaxed, you're relaxed. So already from like our mount or your back, you're relaxing. You know what to do to, to start getting out of the bad position or keeping the position from getting worse. Doesn't mean you're always going to get out. You might get tapped, but you're not suffering like most people are suffering trying to avoid being put in that position or suffering in that position because the first rule with all this is you need to reduce your vulnerability. So if someone has you in a cross face and your neck is going all the way over there, you need to reduce your vulnerability. So, you know, that's where the technique comes from. It's informed by reason. The techniques are informed by reason, rational thinking. That's what's informed by. So you reduce your vulnerability. So you need to cup your hand, get the shoulder out of your neck. So the cross face pressure is gone. And then you start working from there. So you can be in that bad position and be relaxed. Your elbows are in a safe place. You're reducing the cross face pressure. You're not in a horrible position. If you can do that, the most difficult times in jujitsu from white to blue belt, you can dramatically reduce your need to do corrective exercise and heal from the damage of doing like a, a high contact uh, martial art 
like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu submission re- wrestling. So. So it's positional awareness and stress awareness of, of the, the particular situations that you'll find yourself in. Like, for example, like, you know, you're a white belt, you know, you're going to get pinned a lot. You learn how to ad- adapt to decreasing the amount of stress that you're going to be receiving in those situations. And then you have to address yourself less with corrective, corrective work. Yeah. So, and then as far as like the corrective work and it's like, whatever I happened to be doing at that time usually was good enough. You know what I mean? Like whether I was doing foundation training, flowability, uh, Gota, uh, whatever, whatever I was into, that's just the corrective work that I did because what are you doing in that time of your corrective work? You have the full intention of just kind of like getting in your body and just trying to decompress and retention things and kind of get things back in alignment, reduce the, uh, the, uh, you know, whatever the crazy soreness that comes from a lot of certain muscle groups being overused. So you can sleep well, all the neuroplasticity happens when you sleep well, heal from it, you go back and then you space out your training. You know, you don't want to train too, too much. Um, like with weightlifting and jujitsu, you try to space it out as much as possible. That's like a very practical like piece of advice. You don't go lifting and then jujitsu after I've done that. It's not as good as if you space it out with lifting weights. That's another thing too. Like I never got injured lifting weights and i mean like i've done i've done i've done plenty of crazy stuff like lifting weights and a lot of it has to do with proper periodization like you never hear people talk about periodization and percentages like lifting that gets rid of like 80 percent of the problem and then you add a little bit of biomechanics not even that much you're like 90 percent safe lifting weights if you have proper motor patterns and you know what kind of percentages of intensity you should be working with, it removes dramatically a huge part of the problem of lifting weights if you don't have a injury that makes you feel unsafe in your body. You can have an injury, but if you don't feel unsafe, you can lift weights. It's feeling unsafe that creates a problem when lifting weights, when doing jujitsu. Well, it's, it's funny you say that because you know I, I have had a lot of lifting injuries, but they have all been when I'm trying to push myself to the maximum extent. Like I've had periods where I have done very, very smart percentage-based periodization training where I can, I, I, I used to write out like six months of reps and sets and weights. Like I, I wrote out every rep, set and weight for six months of the year and I hit all of them with no injury. And that's when I required the least amount of mobility work, the yeah. least amount of like foam rolling back when, you know, like this was a, like, fairly amateur lifter, but I got myself up to like really, really good numbers on, on barbell lifts without Mm -hmm. any complications Mm -hmm. because it was, it was planned and periodized work. But oftentimes when I'm just, you know, going in the gym and being an idiot or, or like doing uh, way too much volume or not planning and not having that, that structure of basically planning out a progressive stimulus. That's when I've experienced the most complications, the most mobility issues, the impact on my own biomechanics. Um, obviously over-specializing too, like, I, you know, because I would just basically do barbell, like there was a period in my life where I'd do barbell, dumbbell and strength training work. And then I'd sit, you know, I'd sit or I'd, or I'd walk on a treadmill for a little bit mm-hmm. for cardio so that my heart was going. But mm-hmm. um, so, so this idea of smart periodization mixed with some basic biomechanic work that's that's enough for you to say there's no risk of injury and there's there's no way 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 better it's way better may not be perfect may not be perfect if you know your body 
If you know your body, you're in touch with your body, that'll fill up the, the remaining gaps. And whatever little problems you do have, it won't take you away from lifting that long. God forbid an accident happens. I'm sorry. That's life. You'll go on. You'll heal from it. Don't let it prevent you from doing the things you want to do. You feel unsafe. You don't want to lift for a while. That's totally your choice. But don't be like, oh, lifting is the reason why that happened. If you lift again, it's going to happen again. Absolutely. You know, absolutely not. You know what I mean? You're like, we don't want to be, be bubble boy. We want to basically, or bubble boy or bubble girl. We want to do the things that we want to do. There's one thing you can't argue about lifting that you don't see a lot in biomechanics. And it's like, it puts muscle on your body. And when you're young, like a lot of people that are into biomechanics are into, you should, you should, in my opinion, if you're going to do it, do it. And, you know, from your late teens, your 20s to your 30s, so that you have some muscle in your frame to maintain in your 40s, 50s, and 60s, because it's a lot better for you to have that versus not. And there's a lot of people that, you know, are losing all their muscle mass because they're not lifting at all. It's like, dude, just pick up some weights, just, just lift just a little bit. You know what I mean? Using your body as levers. Um, there's one, one good piece of information that came from the guy who wrote the book, uh, Biotensegra, Graham Scar. Um, he basically says like, even if you're using joints in a lever based fashion, the, the joints are still operating somewhat in a helical fashion, like a spiral. You know what I'm saying? You don't get rid of spirals by you using your body in a lever. You know what I mean? Like they don't stop, you know, blood spirals through your, you know, your fascia and your tissue. You know what I mean? You know, so it's not like, and for me doing it all this time, whatever, I haven't posted a gate cycle video in the first place, but me doing everything I want to do, which was what matters to me. It, I've never had a problem doing it, doing jujitsu, walking around, going to sleep. You know, I'm not, I, I'm able to do whatever it is that I want to do, you know? How much weightlifting have you done? Because um, I, I come from a weightlifting, you know, I've done it my whole life. Um, I don't have a big frame. I was up, you know, benching near 400 pounds doing uh, West Side Barbell type of um, uh, programming. So I got to a point where my body was just at the end. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, I was loading heavy, heavy weight yeah. and getting injured. Where does yep. a program like that fit into someone who's already at a higher level with it? That's a really good, that's a really good um, question. I'm going to hit that point at some time. My big goals for weightlifting aren't that big and I'm not that far away from it. Right now, I'm not really training strength. I'm not trying to get to the 400s in my uh, deadlift comfortably or, or, you know, in my squat comfortably, 300s in my bench. My goal is like maybe like somewhere in the 300s for bench, deadlift in the 400s, uh, squat in the 400s because double your body weight you know, there's some reason to believe if you can lift double your body weight, it's like you're kind of like maxing out your strength more or less, unless you're a competitive power lifter. And this, the things that I'm interested in doing are just having general strength for life. You could get away probably with even less uh, than double your body weight. Maybe for combat sports, double your body weight is a pretty good rule of thumb. But when you're kind of like at the end, I mean, you just basically need to maintain and you pick a modality that you like where you can check your weight and you can just add safely density to your muscles um, and then choose to switch the intensity whenever you feel like it. Use a good periodization if you want. There's so many different ways that you could do those numbers. I had good success with Westside. Um, when I did uh, Westside Barbo, I think like for people that don't feel like squatting, doing something like a box squat is nice you know what i mean like you're not going to be like that sore the next day or something like that mm -hmm. doing something like a box squat in my experience adding variety to strength 
uh, exercises instead of trying to max out, not knowing your percentages on the same lifts. Um, one, it's fun and you get a bunch of different ways to PR. So there's a psychological benefit. Okay, I got a PR on my floor press, got a PR on my bench. And your absolute strength, you know, just keeps on kind of increasing overall. And when you kind of reach the end for your own goal, say you're not a power lifter, you're not an Olympic lifter, um, I would think it would give you more freedom because it's like, well, maybe I can try different kinds of programming periodizations. Maybe I can just learn these principles and do it on my own to where I can maintain where I want to maintain, not get hurt there, and then train in different modes, whether it's more for speed or strength or a variety of modes simultaneously, like kind of Westside does, speed, strength strength, speed, absolute strength. You know, there's so many ways you can funnel it. I like uh, Westside Barbell. I like Alex Bromley a lot. I think Alex Bromley is a super smart dude. He has a great video on I Hate Westside up on YouTube. <laughs> you know what I mean, and I like both I like both of those guys. Like I'm doing uh, stuff from Alex Bromley right now. Maybe you just want to do some bodybuilding workouts. Like N1 is a super biomechanics focused, not interested in getting injured, um, weightlifting uh, not way like bodybuilding, um, education platform. So I would recommend something like N1 where everything they consider, they consider the vectors, they consider, you know, all these different kinds of like EMG data so that you're doing the most efficient possible movements for hypertrophy. And they lay out the stimulus for the program design, because that's what it's going to do. Like the program design is really important when lifting weights, because it's ultimately going to create the stimulus um, for whatever cycle you're working with, which is usually like an eight week cycle or something like that. When you're really trying to have a stimulus, create an effect in your body. It's a different art. It's a different science when you're like lifting weights. Definitely. I think in general, when you're going to like lift weights, you should have a plan and an intention. What do I want to do? I want to gain strength. Do I want to get hypertrophy? Am I willing to maybe get injured? Do I absolutely not in any circumstance want to get injured? What kind of strength am I developing? And then you find programming that fits that, um, you know, within the kind of like range of intensity that you feel like putting yourself through and dealing with, you know? And on that note, unfortunately, we have to wrap up this episode. I wish we had more time. I could talk for another two or three hours. Honestly, I could talk for, for like, all day about this stuff because frankly um so much of what you're talking about in terms of philosophy um the, the, the there there are deeper sides to this that I, and i could see throughout the episode you'd bring points up and you'd see this smile go across will's face where because will and i have had private conversations about some of the philosophical side the political philosophy side um and and i don't think we've had a conversation where we've allowed ourselves to get this deep so if you're open to it i'd love to have you back on for yep. another episode or yep. two or three. Uh, and if you like this conversation, guys, for those who are listening, watching on YouTube, um, at Biomech Weekly on Instagram is where Jonathan hosts these awesome conversations. Uh, it's a very, very low cost. It's a Patreon subscription. And then you get added to a private Instagram group where you can see some of these conversations similar to the conversations that we had here. So if you liked this type of conversation, you want to see more context, you want to um, you know, request to kind of join on and have a conversation with Jonathan himself, then go to Biomech Weekly on Instagram at Biomech Weekly, and you can sign up on Patreon, be added to this private group. For those who are listening on YouTube, please like, comment, and subscribe. If you have questions, if you agree, disagree, uh, you liked it, you didn't like it, just let us know what, what you thought on Spotify and iTunes. Please like, subscribe, and uh, leave us a review if you can. It really, really helps. And then you can follow me at 
the body moves on Instagram. Will at the art of move. Thanks for listening, guys. This was the art of move podcast, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Have a good one, guys. See you. Thanks again, man. This was great.